This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome. If you're dialed into the Conspiracy Show, it might mean you're tired of the BS from the mainstream media, tired of the propaganda repeaters who pass them off themselves off as reporters. If you're listening to this show, it might mean you recognize that it's late in the game, the fourth quarter, sudden death overtime. The two-minute warning, uh, pick your sports analogy. Whoever you are and however you found this program, welcome. Who am I? Just a, uh, a humble servant scrabbling around in the darkness like the rest of you trying to find a little bit of truth. And let's face it, the news out there is not good. The storm clouds are gathering. I suggest you learn to grow your own veg, keep your family and friends close, and maybe take a hard, close look at storing some precious metals outside of the bank. And uh, as for me, I've got my eyes skywards, hoping there isn't a drone out there with my name on it. Welcome aboard. Tonight, episode four in our ongoing series, as we commemorate the 50th anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, November 1963, I don't know how many episodes we're going to do. We're just going to keep talking until it gets said. And I've got a great JFK assassination researcher uh, to help us along. As I say, tonight, episode four. Last week on the program, we talked about Lee Harvey Oswald in, in New Orleans, where he was involved with, well, he was the sole member of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee out there in the main street of a very conservative uh, a town distributing flyers for, uh, for Cuba, Fair Play for Cuba. A lot of uh, evidence would suggest that Oswald was a CIA, CIA asset and an agent provocateur uh, who was sent there in, in order to infiltrate or discredit, I suppose, discredit the Fair Play for Castro Committee. Tonight, we're going to look at Oswald's time in Mexico City. And according to the Warren Commission, Lee Harvey Oswald traveled to Mexico City in the fall of 1963 in search of a visa for travel to Cuba 
and the Soviet Union. He apparently failed in that effort, returned to Dallas, where six weeks later, seven weeks later, he shot President Kennedy, supposedly. Allegations of a Cuban or Soviet conspiracy based on events and stories related to this visit bloomed in the aftermath of the assassination. They were apparently instrumental in the creation of the Warren Commission, and over the years, more and more has trickled out regarding a trip which ultimately remains enigmatic. And here, to sort out that little incident in Mexico City, is James Eugenio, co-founder of two organizations, the Citizens for Truth about the Kennedy assassination and the Coalition on Political Assassinations, and is the co-editor of The Assassinations, a book on the deaths of JFK, MF, MLK, RFK and Malcolm X. He's the author of the recently published second edition of Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case. James Eugenio. how are you again, my friend? Good evening, Richard. So let's, uh, let's dive right in. The fall of 1963, seven weeks prior to the assassination, Oswald allegedly goes down to Mexico City traveling uh, there with the express purpose, we are told, of obtaining a travel visa to Cuba. So set the stage for us. What, according to the official version, the Warren Commission version, what happens when Oswald gets there? Well, this is actually one of the most important chapters in my book, and, I, and it's a very, very interesting episode in Oswald's life because uh, you said he was trying to get a visa to Cuba. That's not exactly correct, okay? He was trying to get what they called an in-transit visa to go to Russia from Cuba, okay? And this is one of the really big problems with the Warren Commission is they, they never really explained you know, um, why Oswald was there and the fact that he could, could have done what he wanted to do, which is eventually get to Russia, by doing what he did when he first defected. All right? Sure. Yeah, and, and so what, let, let's, for, I guess the best way to explain this is to first, let's tell your listeners what the Warren Commission says Oswald did, okay? All right, now, in the latter part of September, first, Ruth Payne comes to New Orleans to pick up Marina. Oswald then, according to the Warren Commission, goes to Houston, although the Warren Commission cannot explain how he got to Houston. All right, then he picks a bus, all right, to go down through southern Texas into northern Mexico and all the way to Mexico City, all right? I think on September the 26th or 27th, he arrives in Mexico City, checks in at the Hotel de Comercio, all right, and then tries to go to both the Soviet and the Cuban embassies there to arrange for this in-transit visa to Russia from Cuba. He's totally unprepared for this. He doesn't have any of the paperwork, doesn't even have, uh, you know, according to Sylvia Duran, 
You know, he had to go out and get a picture made of himself, okay? You know, and uh, after going to the Russian embassy, you know, and saying, well, look, you don't have anything close, you know, to the stuff to get to, to Russia, he comes back to the Cuban embassy, and he tries to lie to Sylvia Duran, who's the receptionist there, that everything is cleared at the Soviet embassy. She calls the Soviet embassy. They tell her, no, no, nothing is straightened out here. Okay? And Oswald leaves. Okay? Nobody knows what because if you add up all the time he spent at those two embassies, you know, and on the phone, it's, it's like maybe at the most, you know, three hours. Right. What did he do for all that other time that he was there? There were allegedly several okay. phone calls and at least... According to some, he appeared there about five times in person. There were five visits, right. Right. You know? So what did he do all the other time that he was allegedly there? We really don't know. So when he goes ahead and finds out that he can't, he can't get anywhere, he can't do what he wanted to do, the Warren Commission says that he went ahead and got on a uh, bus and went back through Mexico into, into Texas and he arrives around on the, I think, October the 3rd or October the 4th. Now, that's the Warren Commission. That's what they say happened. All right? Now, how did they base this information? Well, we found out, I think, in 1994, when the Assassinations Record Review Board declassified something called the Slauson Coleman Report, because these were two lawyers, Slauson and Coleman, uh, who went... Uh, to Mexico City at the suggestion of Richard Helms, the CIA, the CIA director, director of plans at the time. And um, they went ahead and they tried to get the information about where Oswald was and what he did. They never even interviewed Sylvia Duran, if you can believe that, who's probably the most important witness you know, in the whole journey down there. Well, yeah, okay. she was the one that was dealing with him most of the time. Right. She dealt with him more than anybody else, okay? But they never interviewed her, all right? And so they came back, and they filed a 30-page report, which essentially said what the CIA and the FBI wanted them to say, okay? That's what it said. Now, now, when the House Select Committee was formed, Okay, in the 1970s, Eddie Lopez and Dan Hardway were assigned to reinvestigate Oswald in Mexico City. Their report, sometimes called the Lopez Report, is over 300 pages long. All right, and it was not declassified in toto until around 1998. And by the way, let me add a, let me add a point here. Even today, in 2013, 50 years after Kennedy's assassination, it's still not totally declassified because there's a section in the report, an addendum, which, which is entitled, Was Oswald an Agent of the CIA? And that is not there. Plus, plus the notes that Lopez and Hardaway took while putting together the report, was taken by the CIA and never declassified either. Okay? Yeah, we should point so, out that the, the, the Soviet and Cuban diplomatic compounds in Mexico City were thoroughly monitored by the CIA. 
I mean, you can understand right. why, obviously. So absolutely correct. They would absolutely have possessed. Correct. They would have possessed tape recordings, transcripts of all of Oswald's telephone calls, if in fact he made them. Right. Well, you're, we're getting a little bit ahead of the story, but that's a good point you brought up. All right. So when this report was finally, the American public was finally allowed. Oh, let me explain why it was classified. Okay, as I explain in my book. Okay, when Eddie and Danny and Robert Blakey, who was the second chief counsel of the House Select Committee, see, because Blakey has signed an agreement with the CIA and the FBI that they had the right to veto anything they did not want made public in the House Select Committee report or their accompanying volumes. Well, when I interviewed Eddie at his house up there in Rochester, New York, you know, he said, Jim, the reason the report was not declassified at that time was because it took us like four hours to get through the first eight sentences. Okay? The CIA objected to everything. Okay? You know, and so Blakey kind of just threw in the towel. All right? Now, if you actually read the report, the first part of the report is a rather tedious and boring technical discussion. But the reason that it's like that is because Eddie and Danny, and this is why the CIA objected to this, Eddie and Danny were explaining in that first part of the report why it is so hard to believe that the CIA cannot produce a picture of Oswald going either into the Cuban embassy or the Russian embassy, because the whole first part of the report describes the five cameras that the CIA had monitoring the entrances to both buildings, one of which was actually a pulse-activated camera, which, meant, which means this. And by the way, and, and they explain this very, in about two pages, how this camera worked. Okay, any time there was a disturbance in the air, <laughs> in the air density, okay, coming out of the, I think it was the Russian embassy, this camera was automatically triggered to take a photograph. All right, listen, I got to jump in here, James. We'll take a time out. We'll come back. Oswald in Mexico City. James Eugenio with us. Destiny betrayed JFK Cuba and the Garrison case. And we are going deep, deep into the uh, research of JFK assassination with James Eugenio, author of Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case. Tonight, episode four in our ongoing series. I don't know how many episodes we'll do. It might be eight. It might be 12. Uh, but rest assured, by the time November 22nd rolls around this year, the 50th anniversary, you'll know more about JFK than you ever imagined. And much of what you learn will be shocking. James Eugenio is with us. Again, the author of Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case. Tonight, we are focusing for the full hour on Oswald's trip to Mexico City. Now, we were talking about the surveillance cameras, uh, and uh, God knows there were, there were many photographs to sift through, because as you just stated, James, that camera would, every time, you know, someone uh, in, in uh, any, anyone in Mexico City uh, coughed, that, uh, that camera was snapping photographs. But j- before right. we get into that, let, let me just get you to explain very briefly in a couple of sentences why it's so crucial for let's say the Warren Commission and those who were intent on building this case against Oswald why it's so crucial for them to prove that it was Oswald in Mexico why is that important that he was there oh well because 
the the Warren Kim, the whole the whole Warren Commission story is that Oswald was some kind of commie sympathizer. Okay, that's that's at least okay. If you go with the really you know the hard right guys in the CIA, you know Oswald was really supposed to be some kind of what they call a sleeper agent. A sleeper agent is somebody you know who comes back from a communist country lies low and then commits some some terrible act okay you know so having him be this commie sympathizer you know and talking to these people in cuba rather at the cuban consulate and the russian consulate and trying to get to cuba and then to the soviet union that then would set him up as part of the motive you know for being this disgruntled communist sympathizer for killing Kennedy, and they added that, of course, to the stuff he did in New Orleans, like getting in the scuffle, you know, with the Cuban exiles and getting arrested, etc. And this all, of course, then burst in to, you know, what you lead off your show with all the time, into the mainstream media, or what I like to call the controlled media, okay, you know, as in, in, in the public consciousness was blasted that Oswald was a frustrated loner communist who killed Kennedy. And that was his motive. That's why it's important for him to be in Mexico City to do doing those things. Right. So they're making they're trying to make it look, you know, he's being very conspicuous, obviously, starting in the streets of New Orleans, as you say, distributing flyers in a very conservative city. And then, of course, the trip to Mexico, repeatedly trying to get uh, uh, back to to uh, to Russia by way of, of Cuba. Now, back to these surveillance camera uh, cam- uh, photographs. And I'm looking at one right here that is allegedly Oswald that's taken – uh, by a surveillance camera outside the Soviet embassy. And clearly, I mean, if you look at it, it's not Oswald. That's, this is supposedly Oswald. How many photographs did they actually have to sift through? Thousands, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. They, 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 were, they were taking photographs all the time down there. Okay. And then they would, and if anybody, they, and by the way, I think I know, is the, is the picture you're looking at of this kind of big husky football player looking guy? Yes. With a, with a crew, okay, okay. Now, and, let, he's, let me, and he's got some sort of a satchel. He looks like we, he's... That we learned in the Lopez report. Okay. Okay. The CIA sent that up to the Warren Commission, okay? And that was supposed to be a picture of Oswald. Once the Warren Commission got it, you know, they realized, well, what the, what the heck is this? You know, they're not even sending us the right pictures. Okay, so they called it the mystery man photograph, okay? You know, and that was it. I mean, can you believe that? That's all they said about it. It's a mystery man photograph, a man outside the Soviet consulate. Now, this is how good the Lopez report was and why it had to be classified. Eddie Lopez and Dan Hardway figured out who that guy was. Okay? He was a, he was a Soviet diplomat. Okay? He does you look know. Slavic. That's, that was my first impression. I looked at this guy and I thought, hey, that looks like Vladimir Putin or something. He looks Slavic. Yeah, yeah okay. They knew. They figured out who he was. And by the way, and this is how incriminating the Lopez report is. They said that the CIA. I don't know how deep you want to get into this. Can we talk about Ann Goodpasture? Let's take, let's take a few minutes. It. Sure, I, I don't. So take a few minutes okay. and walk us through that. Ann Goodpasture was the person in charge of both the photographs and the taping system at CIA Mexico City Station. She had the first crack at both the tapes and the photographs. She ostensibly worked 
for Winston Scott, who was a CIA station chief. But when I interviewed Eddie Lopez and I asked her who she was, said she handled all of David Phillips' operations down there because he was always flying around, you know, to the JM Wave Station in Miami or to Langley, okay, or New Orleans or, or Texas, okay? So she ran his operations. He had a dust down there. Let's just remind okay? people who Phillips was again. We talked about him last week. David Phillips is probably one of the most conspicuous people in this entire case. You know, and it came to be the House Select Committee had very serious suspicions about him being involved in the JFK assassination because he had been seen with Oswald in Dallas in late August of 1963. It turns out him and Jim McCord were running the anti-Fair Play for Cuba Committee operation for the CIA. He had a desk in Mexico City about which he lied about, you know, to the House Select Committee. And the assets that were sent to Mexico City to try and incriminate Oswald, well, Hardway and Lopez found out that every one of those assets traced back to Phillips and then the coup de grace, as I have in my book, as he was dying, he had a conversation with his brother, James, who had always suspected that his brother was somehow involved, and his brother asked him, were you in Dallas the day Kennedy was killed? And Phillips, you know, was broke up weeping and admitted that he was. So he's a very, very <laughs> suspicious character, okay, for all those reasons and even more. Well, it turns out Ann Goodpasture worked with David Phillips, and Hardway and Lopez figured out that she knew who that picture of really was. She knew it wasn't Oswald, and, but she knew who it really was, and she sent the picture up anyway. Okay? See, it was a very serious problem that they could not find a picture of Oswald. Okay? With the kind of coverage that they had, and they made up every single kind of excuse you know, for not having a picture of Oswald. And if you read the Lopez report, every one of those excuses falls by the wayside. Okay, now, let's get to the other problem, the very serious problem. In the Lopez report, they actually declassify all the conversations that the CIA said Oswald had in both the Soviet consulate and the Cuban consulate, but they even went a step further. They talked to the people who actually did the translations. Okay? Now, there's a table in the Lopez report in which they describe every one of these conversations. When you read that table, okay, it's very clear that not only did they not have a picture, they didn't have any tape recordings. Because in every single one, it says... Speaker spoke either poor, broken Russian or fluent Spanish. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> Oswald, as we've learned, was, uh, I mean, Russian, he, he was very fluent in Russian. His Russian was yeah, remarkable. It's the opposite. He was more Oswald remarkable. Oswald spoke fluent Russian and lousy Spanish. Okay? So the question then becomes well, wait a minute. First, you don't have any pictures. Now you're saying you don't have any tapes? Why don't you have any tapes? This guy's not Oswald. Clearly. Why don't you want to give us any of the tapes? Now, see, that threshold 
was never reached with the Warren Commission. It was never reached with the Warren Commission because the Warren Commission never, of course, printed any such table. They never got that far, and the Warren Commission never talked to the translators. Okay. Well, what, let's go back to um, Sylvia Duran for a moment and the, the consular general at the Cuban embassy in Mexico City. They supposedly – they I mean they would, have, they would have dealt directly with Oswald. Did they – what did they say when they were shown pictures of what Oswald looked like and, and what – and the person that they saw? Who did they describe? Okay. Out of the four people that were interviewed, only one person said he saw Oswald. But the one person who said he saw Oswald – had the worst view. He was way in the back in a doorway. All the people who were closest to and interacted with Oswald, like, for example, Askew and Duran, said, this is not, that's not the guy we saw. And in fact, when Sylvia Duran actually testified to the House Select Committee, she described the guy as being short and blonde. When they asked, well, how short was he? She said, about as tall as me. She's about five six, okay, and he had blonde hair. See, now Oswald, of course, was five nine and a half, and had brown hair. Okay, so obviously the person she was talking to was not Oswald. Now years later, Askew went on CBS television and turned over to one of their reporters the pictures inside the Cuban embassy of the guy he says is presented himself as Oswald. Now, guess what? Do I really have to tell you what the pictures look like? <laughs> it's a short guy with blonde hair. There you go. Okay. <laughs> so, so this, see, this whole thing gets so fishy. You know, you can see why the CIA did not want to deal with this with the Warren Commission. Because if all this would have come out in 1964... The Warren Commission would have had some serious, serious problems, you know? Okay, why are they making up all this stuff about Oswald in Mexico City? Is, is, and, by the, and David Phillips, of course, later on, later on in a debate he did with Mark Lane at UCLA, you know, said, when all the evidence is in, you will see that there simply is no evidence that Oswald was ever at the Russian embassy. Okay. Okay. Let me ask you, know, you then. Let, let me just. I, I don't want to get us off track here, but if Phillips or whoever was handling Oswald were able to, you know, they were ordering him to New Orleans and said, you know, go set up uh, the Fair Play for Cuba committee, uh, and you know, conspicuously, you know, get in a fight and deliver fl- and, and and hand out leaflets on the city, make yourself conspicuous. Why wouldn't they have if they really wanted to pin this on Oswald? Just have sent him down there, actually sent him down there, where he could have been photographed. Uh, okay, let me see if I understand the question. Okay, you're saying why wouldn't they send Oswald actually down to Mexico City and do those things? Is that what you were asking me? If they're, if, if they're trying to set him up, yeah, mm-hmm. why, why, have, why concoct this story that he went down there if he didn't and, and, and not be able to... Well, I, I, I think the reason is that Oswald didn't want to go back to Russia. He would have asked too many questions. Ah, okay. Makes sense. You know, exactly. Wait a minute. I was already over there. I didn't like it. The Russians won't accept me as a true Marxist, because I'm not. Okay? So why do you guys want to send me back there again? Makes sense. You know? Makes sense. 
Okay. Yeah. Now, I, I, I don't know if you're ready for this, but I, I, I'd like to talk a little bit about Valerie Kostikoff. Can we go sure. there? All right. So, uh, supposedly, while Oswald was down there, whoever this person was masquerading as Oswald, and we'll get more into that, but Oswald supposedly um, uh, contacts this, this Kostikoff in Mexico City who's supposedly with KGB's Department 13. Tell me a little bit about this uh, Unit 13. All right. Now, according to the FBI and the CIA files, Department 13 was supposed to be the KGB Covert Action Department in the Western Hemisphere, which was responsible for, as people discuss it, you know, liquidation jobs, which means, you know, killing people. Okay, you know, and this information that Kostikov was supposed to be their representative under State Department cover in the Western Hemisphere, stationed in Mexico City, was very, very closely held. Okay, as as I describe in my book, you know, according to the the best evidence I could dig up, all right, um, the CIA kept this kind of very close to the vest until the day of the assassination. All right. I've got to jump okay. in here again. I've got to jump in, James. We'll come back and All continue right. to discuss Oswald in Mexico City, Episode 4, JFK Connecting the Docs with James D. Eugenio here on The Conspiracy Show. Welcome back. James D. Eugenio is with us. Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case, Oswald in Mexico City on tonight's episode. So here we have uh, Oswald sent, uh, supposedly Oswald, down in Mexico City trying to uh, to obtain a visa to get back to the Soviet Union by way of Cuba, which, of course, makes perfect sense if you're trying to, to paint this guy as a commie simp uh, and having a motive to kill the president, uh, being uh, portrayed as, uh, you know, soft on, on Castro and soft on Cuba and soft on communism. What better way, then, to... Uh, to uh, have Oswald suddenly appear in Mexico City trying to get this visa. Only problem is they couldn't produce photographs, photographs of Oswald leaving either the Cuban or the, uh, the, Cuban or the Soviet embassy, uh, nor could they produce phone calls, tape, uh, taped phone calls, uh, keeping in mind, of course, that the CIA had both of those embassies heavily surveilled during this time. So, uh, as you can see, I mean, the, the case really starts to unravel at, at, at this point. And, uh, now, James, further to that, though, they, they really wanted to, to, to paint this picture of, of Oswald as a, as a commie simp. They have him supposedly uh, making a phone call to the Soviet embassy from the Cuban consulate uh, and calling this uh, Valery Kostikov, who is supposedly a KGB assassin. So let's delve into the la- that a little bit. All right. Well, first of all, let me explain why this phone call is so important. Because if you take a look at all the other tapes that were submitted and the transcripts, they don't have Oswald in direct contact with Kostikov. All right? And so now there is this supposedly final phone call from the Cuban embassy to the Soviet consulate in which Oswald is actually talking to Kostikov. The problem with this, the problem with this final piece of evidence is, as I discuss in my book, 
Um, Sylvia Duran denies it ever took place. Okay? And her voice is actually on the tape. Okay? So she says, oh, wait, 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 wait. She says, hold it. Oswald never came back on the afternoon of the 27th. He was out of here before 12 o'clock. So I don't know where you guys got this phone call. Okay? You know? Yeah, I've, I've heard if, that, that phone call ever took place. Now, something so I, now, if I could I just throw you, something in here, James, because I have a question for you about sure. that. Now, I heard it, this supposedly this phone call took place on a Saturday, and I heard that the Cuban consulate was closed on Saturdays. Right. That's another reason. That's another reason that that phone call is very, very hard to swallow. Okay? Because, see, there's there's different, um, um, there's different, um, you know, testimony as to this. But they were not open a full day on Saturday. Okay? So either way, okay, that phone call is very, very suspicious. Okay? In, in, in every single aspect. All right? So as many people, including myself, you know, have come to think, okay, that phone call is really a double forgery. Okay? It's not just Oswald. Okay? It's also Duran's voice being forged on that tape. Now, as we mentioned earlier, why did the CIA go to those kinds of lengths, okay, to do this? And do you, do you, do you want to talk about what happens on a day of the assassination, or do you just want to... Because uh, that's why this is so important. Well, yeah, but I, before we get to that, I mean, I, I have another question that, that uh, jumps out at me, and that is, if in fact the CIA had this information... Uh, these audio recordings, the transcripts, and they knew before Kennedy shows up in Dallas that Oswald, a known defector, is in Mexico City making contact with a KGB assassination guy. I would think they'd turn that immediately over to the FBI in Dallas. Well, I'm glad you asked that question because that foreshadows what's going to happen on the 22nd. Okay? All right. Now, in my opinion, and this is the argument I make in my book, okay, the reason this was not made public, because let's go back a little bit. This is seven weeks before the assassination. Seven weeks before the assassination. You would think somebody in the CIA would say, wait a minute, you know, Somebody has to get this information out there that this Oswald guy was somehow in Mexico City talking to Kostikov. Okay? You know? And we know who Kostikov is. All right? But somehow this information does not come to the forefront in those intervening seven weeks. Hosty, the FBI guy, says, I never knew who this Kostikov guy was. They never told me. They only said he was a State Department employee. Okay? Okay, so I got it. How was I supposed to know? I got to jump in again. Yeah, this is a recurring theme, isn't it? Even uh, as uh, late as the Boston bombing. One intelligence group saying we didn't get the handoff from the another intel- intelligence group, and we're supposed to believe that this was all just some sort of a screw up. We'll be back. James D. Eugenio talking Oswald in Mexico City. Stay with us. Welcome back. Oswald in Mexico City. James D. Eugenio with us, installment four of our ongoing series on JFK. 
taking us right through until November of this year, the 50th anniversary. Okay, so the FBI supposedly learns on the afternoon of the assassination it hadn't been kept fully informed by the CIA of Oswald's activities in Mexico City. So let's pick it up from there. What, what does it, I mean, okay. how does the CIA explain this away? Right. Um, on the day of the assassination, okay, in an after-action CIA report, it was revealed that the FBI called the agency when Oswald's name was first mentioned on the radio. That call was then passed on to James Angleton's office, and now Kostikov's true identity was revealed. Okay? So, in other words, this was being very, very closely held. The FBI calls the CIA. They're transferred over to Angleton's office. And now this information that had been so closely held is finally out into the system. Okay? And it causes a huge panic throughout the intelligence community because obviously the interpretation these guys will put on it is just what I said earlier. Was Oswald a sleeper agent sent back from the Russians after being turned into a KGB agent over there, laying low, and now meeting with Kostikov to get his assignment, which was to kill Kennedy? All right. You can imagine how these guys felt. All right. We blew it. We allowed President Kennedy to get killed. Yeah, I can see how that would uh, uh, that would be pretty disconcerting. I mean, and 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 the, yeah. and the CIA obviously knowing that they don't have definitive, they don't have any proof that Oswald was down there. They hold it back. They want. Right. They want to pin this on on Oswald, so they're not well, going to release well, it. Well, let's take it one step further, because I know you read my book. What happened is that the CIA sent a tape up to Dallas the night of the assassination. Supposedly, one of these tapes they had of Oswald in the Russian consulate. Okay, the FBI agents hear it, and they write a memo to Hoover saying. We've just interrogated Oswald. We sat in on some of these interrogations of Oswald in Dallas. And this voice on the tape does not correspond uh, to the guy we heard. So therefore, we don't think this is Oswald. Now, to take this one step further, on November the 23rd, okay, he gets this, this picture, okay, which of course is not Oswald. All right, he has this conversation with Johnson saying, uh, you know something, something's really funny here, because I got this report saying the voice on the tape is not Oswald. I got this picture that ain't Oswald. So there appears to be a second guy down there. Okay? All right? Now, after this, as, as you read in my book, on November the 24th, something unbelievable happens. Something really shocking happens. Everybody now goes through this dumb act that the tapes never existed. The tapes never existed. Okay, all we had was transcripts. Even though these guys in Dallas heard the tape. Okay? All right? Because now, of course, the CIA can't blow this and say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Were you impersonating Oswald in, in Mexico City? Because that's obviously what Hoover, Hoover was thinking. Then seven weeks later, seven weeks later, Hoover writes on the side of this uh, marginalia 
of this memo that I don't think we should trust the CIA anymore because remember the snow job they gave us about Oswald in Mexico City. And by the way, if you read about the relationship between the CIA and the FBI, you'll see that it's this event that really begins to drive a wedge, okay, between the two agencies. You know, not it was over the Kennedy assassination, the Mexico City thing, and the whole Kostikov, not the Kostikov thing, but the Nosenko thing, which we haven't talked about yet. No. Okay? So that's, this is what happens with these tapes, okay, on the day of the assassination. Very, very interesting. To say the least. Now, just to jump yeah. ahead, though, is, it, was there not supposedly a recording of the telephone call between Hoover and Johnson in which they discussed the possibility of an imposter in Mexico City? Well, do you know the story behind that? I, I, I believe there was a documentary made about it, but, and there's the, uh, something about a 14-minute gap in that tape? Right. Okay. There's, <laughs> there, there supposedly was a phone call about this, okay? But guess what? We don't actually have the phone call. All we have is a transcript, okay? And there's a 14-minute gap, okay, in the tapes in which suddenly we don't hear these guys talking anymore. Okay? All we're supposed to believe is a transcript we have of this. Now, of course, for someone like you or someone like me, considering we know how important this is in the history of the United States, this phone call between Hoover and Johnson, okay, that's a very, very interesting exception. You know? The obvious question is, why? And why did the Warren Commission and why did the House Select Committee never get to the bottom of this. What exactly happened to those 14 minutes? Why aren't they there? And why is it so convenient? Okay, at such a crucial time. If there was, I mean, this impersonator, was this, as far as the, I mean, how did the CIA or the Warren Commission attempt to you know, explain this? Did they just say, well, oh, Oswald must have sent someone down to impersonate him? Is that how they tried to explain it? No, the Warren Commission never explained it. They didn't. The Warren Commission never got that far. The Warren Commission never questioned what the CIA's materials were. Okay? They went along with what the CIA said happened. Now, the House Select Committee, okay, they went a lot deeper. But their report, their report, their actual um, report, plus I think they had 12 volumes, Never goes into all this stuff. Never goes in because the Lopez report was classified. So they never delve into all these different problems, okay, with the real story. See, what I'm telling you now, what I'm telling you right now, okay, on this conversation, did not become public knowledge until the 1990s, okay? Prior to this, the closest you got to it was Anthony Summers' book, Conspiracy, okay, which delved into Mexico City a little bit. And up until the 90s was probably the best information that we had. And he did explain a little bit of this stuff. But, he did, but since he didn't have the Lopez report, he really couldn't go into any depth about it. So what I'm telling you in this phone call is stuff that we got in 1997. I mean, isn't that pathetic? It is. I mean, isn't that sickening? Here, here's I mean, the other thing. We had to wait 34 years to find out the truth about Mexico City. 
and tell me there tell me there wasn't a cover up. Right. When you gotta wait thirty four years to find out that the CIA is lying and it's too late to ask anybody, well how come you were lying? Okay. And James Angleton, when Winston Scott dies, okay, flies down so fast to Mexico City that he forgot his passport, goes into his widow's house, threatens her with her pension benefits, and basically scoops everything out of his safe, puts it in the valise, sends a, a, a messenger team back to take everything else out, and flies up to, back to Langley to make sure that nobody's ever going to know the truth about Oswald or Oswald not being in Mexico City. Well, I think to call us a little paranoid is ridiculous. I mean, if you don't think there's something suspicious about that, something's wrong with you. Well, here's, okay. yeah, here's the other thing. Even if people listening to this program are still convinced that Oswald pulled the trigger, here's the thing. If, if there was someone down in Mexico, and in, let's say Oswald did it, that means, and, if, and we know it wasn't Oswald, that means Oswald had at least one accomplice. So right yeah. there, from that standpoint, that proves there was a conspiracy. If he had one other person... If he had one other accomplice down there, that means Oswald was part of a greater conspiracy. There's no, there's no right. other way of getting around it. Yes. He was being aided and abetted. Right. Or if he's being impersonated then without his knowledge, same right. thing. It's, he's, part, he's a victim then in this case, part of a greater conspiracy. There's, there's right. no other way around it. That's, I, I would say that's correct. How? Now, let, let, let me yeah. say something else, because there's, there's a, a small part of the story that we haven't, that we haven't told. Yeah, we have about three minutes. So, you, yes. Okay, according to the Lopez report, this guy went to the National University and talked to a student there. Okay, well, guess what? When the House Select Committee interviewed this student that Oswald allegedly talked to, showed him a picture of Oswald, he says it, well, that's not him either. <laughs> okay. So, in other words, it's it's almost a blank slate. And then you got to ask the question why. Well, and I think you yeah, you answered it. <laughs> you answered it off the top. They wanted to if they're going to hang this thing on Oswald, you got to you got to make him uh you got to turn him into a communist sympathizer. You send you got to send someone down to Mexico City to get this visa to have him in contact with this KGB assassin. Uh How do you think the uh, how do you think had this come out in 1964, how do you think the Warren Commission would have dealt with it? I know I'm asking you to speculate, but... I really don't know how they would have dealt with it. I mean, I think, knowing what I know about the Warren Commission, they would have lied about it. Okay? But, they, but the problem they would have had then is how are we going to bury the information? Do, do we dare print the information if we're going to try and cover it up? You know, that would have been a real problem. Because somebody obviously reading the volumes would have found out, wait a second, they're full of baloney. Oswald wasn't there. I suppose they could have tried to, <laughs> to stick Oswald's head on somebody's body. <laughs> Lord <laughs> knows they've tried that before. <laughs> so listen, James, uh, this is fascinating. This is an important chapter. I think people tend to gloss over, you know, oh, okay, he went down to Mexico City. He's, he was down there for a couple of weeks. He tried to get a visa. He didn't, he didn't get it. He came back. This is crucial. I mean, well, see, there's about 20 pages on this in my book, but it could, it could have easily been longer. It could have, with, with all we know about Mexico City. I mean, it really is an utter enigma of what the hell happened down there. You know, to this day, nobody can figure out exactly what happened down there. 
you know? Well, clearly, Oswald wasn't down there. I think that well, much I don't we think do. so, no. No, I think that he, much he, we do he, know. Let's put it this way. If he was there, he did not do what the CIA and the Warren Commission said he did, okay? James, uh, on our next installment, we'll, um, we'll, we'll reconnoiter back probably uh, later this summer, and we'll, uh, we'll come back with a couple of back-to-back episodes. I'd like to, obviously, next uh, stop for Oswald is Dallas. and uh, yeah, talk returning and, to Dallas. We'll, we'll return to Dallas, and I'd like to spend... I know this part isn't in your book, but when we, you and I met in that hotel in Los Angeles, and you spent about close to an hour walking me through the whole mail order of the uh, the murder weapon. This is an incredible, an incredible piece of information that people need to hear. Oswald supposedly ordering the man Lico Carcano from the uh, the shop in Chicago. Kleins. Yeah, yes. let's do that, shall we? Can I can I get my book a little plug here? Please do. Okay, you can get my book on Amazon uh, either in uh, Kindle, Nook, or uh, soft cover. Okay, it's there. You can even get an audio book if you like downloading stuff on MP3 players and listening to books. You can even get an audio book because it's available on that also. Destiny betrayed. JFK Cuba and the Garrison case. James D. Eugenio. Always a pleasure and. Uh... We'll meet up later this summer. Okay, Richard, I'll talk to you then. Thanks, Jim. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Richard Serrett uh, website, richardserrett.com. Your portal to The Conspiracy Show. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome aboard, friends. I'm staring through the glass at my young producer, Tim Spreen. How do, how do? Just got back from a, uh, a wedding, literally five minutes from here, across uh, Lakeshore Boulevard at uh, what used to be Ontario Place, there's a um, a wonderful uh, venue there called uh, Atlantis, 
And uh, one of my little guy's godmother was getting married. And uh, uh, Zachary, six years old, was out on the dance floor tonight. Just unbelievable. He was like, I don't know. Something came over him. He's normally a very shy uh, individual. We got him out there, and he loves to dance, but not in front of people. And he dragged me up there. He said, Dad, let me show you a few steps. <laughs> I tell you, you know what? I, I, I keep saying this. If you pay attention to what's really going on, on in the world, it's, it's dire, okay? The economy, it's dire. You don't get this from the mainstream press. We are on the cusp of uh, economic meltdown. I'm sorry to say it's true. I believe it with every, you know, every fiber of my being. But what are we, what are we to do? I mean, we're, we're powerless. You know, what we're, you know what you need to do? You need to get out there and dance. That's what you need to do. You need to enjoy yourself. Uh, I think I've said this before. You, you know, learn how to grow your own vegetables. Squirrel a little gold bullion away. Not in the banks. Keep your family and friends close to you. Get out there and dance. I'm a horrible dancer, but I don't, even, I don't care anymore. I'm just going to get out there and dance because, hey, that's all that's left to us. You've got you to gotta grab on to hold, hold of something, enjoy yourself a little bit, um, pray to your God, whoever that may be, and uh, batten down the hatches. But dance. All right. Uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley is going to join me here in just a moment. Uh, a remarkable uh, story she's working on involving haunted artifacts, specifically dolls. It gets worse. Uh, I know a lot of people that are afraid of, uh, of dolls. Clowns. I know people that are afraid of clowns. Horrified by clowns. Imagine a haunted clown doll. We're going to hear about that in just a moment. A little bit later on the, uh, the hour, a heads up. Victor Vigiani, our good friend here from Zeland News uh, Network, has just recently returned from Washington. They had a big citizen's hearing down there on UFO disclosure. He sat in on the testimony. A former senator has now come out after sitting in on these hearings and said he is now convinced ETs are here on Earth, interacting with humanity. And uh, Victor will, uh, will fill us in, I'm sure, on some other uh, uh, riveting testimony that he heard, including some from our own former defense minister, the Honorable Paul Hellyer. This was the former deputy prime minister who was down there saying some pretty mind-blowing things. He's, uh, Mr. Hellyer has been on this program saying some pretty mind-blowing things. Wait till you hear what he had to say down there in Washington. Our lives may never be the same again, Tim. Are you ready for this? All right, let's launch into it. Uh, first of all, however, I'm very pleased to welcome back Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our regular contributor, paranormal investigator extraordinaire, the author of nearly 50 books, 10 of the major encyclopedic works, and she joins us the second Sunday of every month. Hey, Rosemary, how are you? I'm doing great, Richard. Just got back from the International UFO Congress. It was such a delight to see you there. What yeah. a great event. Yes, it was a great event. Uh, I mean, I guess that is among, uh, in terms of the UFO conferences, that is the big daddy, isn't it? It is. It is the best, the biggest, uh, always a great event for the latest of research information from the leading experts in the field. And a fabulous networking event. And who can beat going to Arizona in the winter time? Oh, I think we both needed a break. You're getting uh, lots of snow in Connecticut. Same here, up in uh, north of Toronto. And it was great meeting your your fiance Joe, by the way. And congratulations once again. Thank you very much. We will be getting married sometime this spring. Uh, Joe loves these subjects as well. In fact, we actually met at a Mothman conference in 2004. How appropriate. 
How appropriate. And we'll talk about the Mothman because the Mothman figures largely in... Rosemary Ellen Guiley, how are you? Hi, Richard. Well, I'm busy as ever. I'm getting ready to go to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania for a haunted weekend event. I go to Gettysburg every year, and it's such a wealth of paranormal phenomena there, uh, mostly from the battlefield of the Civil War era. You can still experience uh, the 1863 battle. It's an incredible place. I, I, I can imagine that, that, that these Civil War battlefields would be a treasure trove for uh, EVPs and, and uh, Frank Frank's box sessions, just because obviously so much uh, of violence, a tragedy, death surrounding those battlefields, it could keep you busy just touring around all of these battlefields scattered across the United States indefinitely. It certainly can, and, and I've had years of experience at Gettysburg, always have uh, data to collect there, and it's different every time. You can always tune into something. One of the things that I also like about Gettysburg is the town itself, because it has some very interesting antique shops, and sometimes you run across haunted objects, uh, objects that have um, residues of, of memories and emotional attachments, objects that have spirits attached. And occasionally you run across one of the most interesting haunted objects of all, and that's the haunted doll. So I'm going to be out looking for dolls this weekend. I've been getting calls from people uh, who feel that they have purchased haunted dolls, and they want to know if such a thing is real. And yes, it is very real. Oh, it's 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 one of those things that's very creepy uh, to me. I remember my mother uh, purchased an antique doll. This was just a few years ago. My mother now up in her 80s, but she saw this beautiful antique doll. And uh, she sat it on top of her bed. And, and several years ago, I, I bought my mother a dog. And the first day, I brought I bought this I brought this uh, puppy over to my mom's house, and the dog, of course, did the tour of the house, made a beeline for her bedroom, and sat at the ed- edge of the bed, transfixed, looking at this doll and barking, barking cr- like crazily, as if I don't know it's it sensed something about this doll. So you're absolutely right. There's something about dolls. It, the dog probably did, because animals are very sensitive to that. And if you bring an object in to your home that has some kind of weird energy to it or a spirit attachment, your pets are going to pick up on that right away. And many times they'll avoid the object because they, it's unsettling to them. Not all spirit attachments are bad, but uh, we investigators, we always hear about the problem ones. For some reason, uh, well, actually, I have some pretty good reasons why dolls seem to be more likely to be haunted than other possessions, even though anything can can get a spirit attachment. The thing about dolls uh, is they're uh, in a likeness to human beings, and they're they're like little people. And when kids play with them, they imbue them with a personality, they animate them. Uh, People who collect dolls... um, imbue them with a lot of emotional energy and so it's no surprise that they then can become ideal vehicles for spirit attachment and when those objects pass on to new owners and they get in the right environment with the with the right person they can literally start acting as though they have a life of their own so is the idea here rosemary that perhaps this doll uh, let's assume it was an older doll, maybe an antique, 
the the previous owner, maybe a little girl, uh, uh, died and was so attached to that doll during her lifetime that when she passed, her her spirit went into that doll. That's certainly a possibility. Um, when people have a great deal of attachment to an object, and especially if they have an unhappy death or a sudden death, uh, some of them may remain behind uh, clinging to a favorite object. Sometimes just our emotions can stay with an object and take on a personality. If you uh, have a, a beloved object and uh, you, you don't want to part with it, um, some of your emotions can cling to an object and kind of take on a personality, too. And then someone acquires it, and haunted objects are usually acquired secondhand, although I, I do have cases where brand new objects uh, come along with, with something extra, so to speak. But it's usually a secondhand object, and someone admires it in a shop. Uh, quite often they feel there's something very unusual about it. Uh, and so they bring it home, and things start to happen. There's a weird atmosphere in the house. They suddenly have poltergeist phenomena. They start having strange dreams. Most interesting of all, and this does happen, the dolls move around on their own. Oh, jeez. <laughs> That's the last thing I'd need. So, so now, people are reporting. So, people that are contacting you now that have dolls, they're reporting this type of activity. They actually see the 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 doll. What doing? What hovering above the bed or walking across the room on its little plastic legs? What? Well, it's very rare to actually see the object move, uh, and this is the case with haunted objects in general. Is that you? You rarely see them move, but you find them move. For example, a lot of people have doll collections. They'll put the dolls on a certain shelf or in a certain room, um, and they leave and then come back in the room, and the doll is in another location. How did it get there? Who moved it? And so they put it back. They think, oh, well, I must have done it and forgot about it. Uh, so they put the doll back in the, the original spot, and the doll moves again. Uh, I've had cases where uh, people find dolls turned around so that their faces are uh, facing the wall instead of out into the room. Even dolls that have moved from room to room. Um, I had one case where uh, a woman said that she started dreaming about the doll, and uh, she would dream about it coming into the bedroom, and this was like a terrifying dream to her, and she would wake up and the doll wouldn't be there, but she would find the doll moved uh, to different locations in the house. And some of these stories remind me of, of this old Twilight Zone episode about a doll called Talking Tina, and the stepfather uh, disliked the doll, and his stepdaughter was very attached to this Talking Tina doll. My name is Talking Tina. Well, the doll started talking to him privately whenever no one else was around, and Talking Tina would say, my name is Talking Tina, and I don't like you. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he tries to destroy the doll, and he can't destroy it, and, you know, in the end, the doll manages to do him in. Um and uh, some of these stories are really not too far off from that. So the people wind up getting rid of these dolls. And, and um, the most haunted doll of all is the clown doll. 
there's just something about clown dolls as opposed to, you know, little girl and little boy dolls uh, that seems to attract ex- extra spirit energy. And maybe it's because clowns themselves are kind of terrifying to many people. They yes. have a very unsettling energy to them. That's so true. I, I know a number of people that are, are frightened to death of, of clowns. So, I mean, talk about uh, a horrible combination. Clowns and dolls, haunted clowns and dolls. Uh, a lot of people's worst nightmare. And a number of movies, I think, have been made uh, or t- television shows. You mentioned The Twilight Zone. Of course, we have the whole the, the Chucky uh, franchise, which was about... Uh, uh, a haunted vent or possessed, I suppose, possessed ventriloquist doll. We'll take a time out here in a moment, and and I'll tell you very quickly about. I have a um, or used to have a ventriloquist uh, dummy uh, that I received back in 1975 from the Towers Department Store up here in Canada. I received it for Christmas. It was the only thing I wanted, and uh, was absolutely thrilled to open it up. It was called Tommy Talker. You just mentioned Talking Tina. My ventriloquist dummy was Talking to- or Tommy Talker. And uh, I had it just up until a few years ago, and my wife, uh, who I suspect is, is uh, well, I know she's very perceptive and very, perhaps psychic, has had a number of paranormal experiences. She just had a bad vibe about this, this ventriloquist doll, and she made me keep it in the garage. Wouldn't allow it in the house, and then finally it ended up, ended up in, the, uh, in the dumpster. Uh, but a lot of people, you're right, absolutely frightened. Uh, by uh, ventriloquist dolls and uh, clown dolls and so forth. Rosemary Ellen Guiley with us, paranormal investigator, joins us the second Sunday of every month. We'll take a time out. When we'll come back, we'll talk more about haunted dolls here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us, the author of nearly 50 books on the uh, the paranormal, supernatural, including 10 major uh, encyclopedic works. And we're talking here about haunted dolls. So, do you have any haunted dolls, Rosemary? Do you collect them? Um, I don't. I have had haunted statues, which you know are very similar because um, statues of people uh, can become animated as well. So uh, I do have a few of those, but uh, I don't have any haunted dolls myself, per se. Um, I've had a number of cases lately. These things seem to come in waves. And for some reason, I've been getting haunted dolls lately. Um, and what people want to know, well, what do I do? Should I get rid of it? Some of these dolls have been very expensive for the, the owners. They are collectors, you know, and uh, they look for old or rare dolls or dolls that have been done as special editions or collections. Um, and they want to know, can, can I salvage the, do I have to get rid of it? Do I, can I save it? What, what usually happens is that people get so creeped out, they wind up getting rid of them. and Or they'll put them out in the garage, you know, like your wife didn't want the, the ventriloquist doll in the house. And um, perhaps if you had put it in the house, you might have had some paranormal phenomena. Well, they'll take it out, they'll put it in a garage, and uh, then the activity in the house will quiet down. They think it's safe again. They'll bring the doll back in, and it all starts up again. So uh, they realize that at that point that they just want to get rid of it. So what, what, what is the, if you don't want to get rid of it, let's say it is an antique, maybe a, fair, a family heirloom, uh, but you suspect the doll is haunted, what do you do? Is there some sort of a, a, a cleansing ceremony or ritual that you can perform? 
there are a number of things that people can do, and, and one is to remove the doll from the premises and uh, get some uh, blessed salt uh, or some sea salt uh, and uh, put the doll in salt and uh, in a little pan and leave it outside on sunny days where and this sort of thing will help to purify the doll and then to uh to say some prayers over it uh prayers uh, you can ask the angels for example to come in and cleanse the object and um that whatever is attached and sometimes we don't know exactly what's attached whether it's residual energy that's become animated like a thought form or it's actually a spirit uh, and ask for uh, the doll to be cleansed of, of all energy and residues. And sometimes that's very effective. Uh, one should never destroy uh, an object that appears to be haunted, because if it's destroyed and it does have a spirit attachment, then the spirit immediately wants to jump into something else. So it might jump into another possession in the house, uh, and your problem isn't over. It's just been transferred. So that's one of the best things that people can do. There are also prayers that are binding prayers, and uh, these are for especially troublesome uh, cases where the phenomena is uh, very active and even very hostile toward people. Uh, it's safer to ritually bind a spirit to an object, um, and then the object does need to be removed from the home. And it's best to call in an expert like that, someone like myself, someone like John Zaffis. Um, many people on paranormal investigation teams are skilled at doing this sort of binding. But that's in, in exceptional cases. Usually objects can be cleansed. Uh, tell me about uh, a case that you've been involved with involving a, a haunted or possessed uh, a doll uh, that you found particularly disturbing. Well, there was one case where um, nightmares were involved, and uh, this was a clown doll, uh, and uh, the woman who bought it had a rather large collection of clown dolls, and... Um, none of them had ever given her any trouble. So, you know, people don't automatically think that when things start to happen that it's a doll. Uh, and uh, she put this particular doll, she propped it up on her bed, and it had a little hat. Uh, and she would walk into her bedroom and find the hat missing. Um, and it would be discovered in some bizarre location. Uh, like uh, another room or, you know, purse, you know, th weird things like that. And then sometimes the doll, she would find the doll sitting in different positions on the bed, and it began to give her kind of a, a, a creepy feeling. Well, she started having nightmares, and sometimes the nightmares are are vague, like people don't associate them with the doll, but um, she started having these syndromes of nightmares where she would be pursued by monsters, and that's a very common kind of nightmare. And uh, there was then an increase of poltergeist activity in the house, like thumps on the walls, and sometimes as she was drifting off to sleep, she would hear this um, thumping or tapping on the walls, and Sometimes you think, well, it's the house settling, it's 
you know, a mouse got in or something like that. But the tapping would go all the way around the room, like something was doing it very deliberately. Uh, and so she contacted me. I was uh, she was referred to me by um, someone who who knew of me, and I talked to her uh, about it and pinpointed that this activity. And she didn't still didn't associate with the doll, but um, you know something bizarre was going on in, in the house. And I told her paranormal activity always starts with a reason. It just doesn't start for no reason. So we were able to pinpoint that all of this started to happen at about the time when she brought this doll into the house. And she had just associated like the missing cap and the changed positions with absent-mindedness, you know, kind of forgetfulness. But now all of a sudden for her, things were starting to add up. So she lived in a distant state. And uh, I told her to remove the doll uh, from the the house, and she did. And when she did, the activity then stopped. Uh, so uh, I told her, I, I said, well, you can try cleansing the doll um, because this, this isn't really extreme activity here. It's a bit unsettling to you and it is escalating, but it's not extreme. But at that point, she did not want to, uh, to uh, hang on to the doll. So uh, I said, well, don't give it to a charity, you know, don't, uh, don't hand the problem to somebody else. Then put it in a plastic bag, sprinkle some salt in the plastic bag and say a prayer over it and um, put it out with, you know, the, the, uh, the trash. And that's what she did. A lot of these doll- dolls, of course, uh, they, um, their eyes will, can move, they can blink. Uh, if you put your, you know, with your finger, obviously they don't do it by themselves, but uh, uh, some of them talk if you squeeze their hand uh, and so forth. Have you ever heard or received an email from someone with a doll that has had a doll doing these things on their own, maybe uh, talking, uh, uh, saying something out of the ordinary or the eyes were moving by themselves, anything like that? Uh, I haven't had people say that they've seen the the eye I seem to move on their own, but they have, I have a, a, a number of cases where people have told me that the doll talks, but, and in most cases, they hear the doll in their heads telling them things, and in a few cases, people have sworn that they have heard a voice, like a disembodied voice in the room. Um, I had, uh, I have one case where um, somebody told a, told a doll uh, to stop doing those things in a very angry sort of way. And when she turned around to walk out of the room, the doll flung itself Whoa. <laughs> uh, at her. She was hit in the back with it. And uh, uh, that that's a rather extreme action. But these, um, these other types of communication, uh, some people wonder if it's just their imagination, um, if they're not accustomed to paranormal things and not thinking in, in those lines. And that can be very, very frightening to some people to, uh, to be wondering what's going on and to be looking at a doll and then hear something in their heads like the doll is talking to them. Yeah, it would be enough to swear uh, most people off dolls for life, I would think. Rosemary, thank you for this as always. What's, uh, what are you working on next? I know you're heading off to uh, Gettysburg, to the Civil War uh, uh, battlefield. What else are you up to? I'm working on a book now on interdimensional portals. 
uh, this is a topic I've been studying for some years, and I've been profiling portals uh, around the country for their characteristics and the type of activity in them. Uh, it's a very interesting project, and uh, also working on a book on ghosts and hauntings in West Virginia, which is one of my favorite states, very active paranormally. Yes, you just finished a, a, a book on on um, mythical or, or strange creatures from West Virginia. So the right. uh, so that state is definitely uh, paranormal central. It's uh, definitely one of the more haunted states in the country. All right, Rosemary, always a pleasure. Talk soon. Okay, thank you, Richard. Bye bye. Good night. Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Always great uh, to hear from Rosemary. And uh, as again, uh, she joins us the second Sunday of every month. Victor Vigiani is standing by from Zeland News Network. He's going to give us a quick update. Well, not too quick. We'll have uh, uh, about 20 minutes with Victor after the uh, the break coming up here. And he'll fill us in on the citizens' hearing on uh, disclosure that took place recently down in Washington. I believe uh, over a period of about five days, uh, a number of witnesses uh, Dozens and dozens of key uh, witnesses, uh, former military people, uh, politicians, uh, and they were presenting this uh, this testimony before uh, a number of former members of Congress, including a former senator, uh, Senator Gavel, I believe, who has since come out and s- stated after hearing this testimony that he's now convinced, he said there's no doubt ETs are in fact here on Earth, and they are interacting with, with humankind. Uh, so it'll be interesting to, to, to see, uh, to hear what Victor has to say after uh, sitting uh, and listening intently uh, to, the, uh, to the testimony. Uh, he sent me a quick email when he was down there and uh, told me he had uh, heard some amazing things and seen some amazing things. Photographs of, uh, military photographs of alien bodies. I'll ask him about that. So Victor Vigiani standing by. Just a quick heads up, uh, what's coming up in the uh, the weeks ahead on The Conspiracy Show. Uh, Chris Putnam uh, will be here uh, next week to talk about papal prophecies and uh, whether or not the current pope is in fact the last pope uh, as prophesied by St. Malachi. If you've followed uh, or are familiar with St. Malachi's papal prophecies, writing in the 14th, 15th century, I believe, he identified all of the, uh, the popes up into the, what he called the last pope uh, based on their motto or their coat of arms in some instances uh, with startling accuracy. So we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll hear from Chris Putnam next week on papal prophecies. And uh, uh, David, uh, Paul David, as a film out called The Life After Death Project. And we'll talk to uh, Paul David about that. And a self-described uh, a crackpot historian, Adam Rightly will be with us uh, to talk about uh, famous con- comedians, a growing list of famous comedians who have died under mysterious circumstances and whether, whether or not there is a, a conspiracy there. Look forward to, uh, to hearing from Adam Rightly. All right, Victor Vigiani standing by. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show right after this. Stay with us. The Citizens' Hearing on Disclosure, organized by UFO lobbyist uh, Stephen Bassett, has just wrapped up down at the National Press Club in Washington, where former members of Congress sat and heard 
hours and hours of riveting testimony uh, from everyone from uh, FAA officials, uh, military individuals, commercial pilots, uh, historians, uh, a podiatrist in one case, uh, Dr. Uh, um, uh, Roger Lear, uh, a former Canadian Minister of Defense and Deputy Prime Minister, Paul Hellyer, all these people gathering in Washington, testifying uh, about what they know about the ET presence here on Earth. And one in attendance was our very own Victor Vigiani, the executive director of Zealand News Network, who joins us now. Hey, Victor, how are you? Welcome home. Thanks a lot, Richard. It's great to be back. So, did you have your uh, world rocked? I mean, I know you live this beat every day, but uh, I'm guessing you heard things down there in Washington that even blew your mind. Well, having spent from uh, Monday uh, right till Friday, the entire week in the hearing room, uh, a large hearing room, it was um, extremely provocative, Richard, and it... uh, it was uh, so, uh, how, how can I describe it? It was like, uh, I don't know if that you, many of your listeners uh, recall uh, the, the Watergate hearings back when Richard Nixon was uh, called into, into question about his behavior uh, and the, the series of witnesses that came forward. It was much like that. It was tense, it was um, dramatic, and it was all-encompassing. And the number of witnesses that came forward, the... Um, the auspiciousness of all of the uh, of the committee, the the, the panel from the, the uh, former congressional leaders, it was uh, quite the scene it, it, in the National Press Club uh, in downtown Washington D.C. You had to be there to feel the electricity in the air. Now the the makeup of the uh, the former congressmen. These are some of them were former representatives. Some of them were former senators. All since. Uh, you know, retired or no longer in office. Uh, but what was overall? What would you say was their sort of uh, temperament or mood? I mean, were they feisty? Were they skeptical? Were they asking probing questions? Tell me about them. Well, the the uh, altogether there were six uh, former members of of the United States Legislature. Uh, five of them were former congressional members of the of Congress. Um, Congressman Bartlett, Congressman Merrill Cook, uh, Congressman Darlene Hooley, uh, Congressman Carol Kilpatrick, and Congressman woman Lynn Woolsey, and then Senator Mike Gravel, former uh, presidential candidate, by the way. So you had um, these, these these six individuals who were um, very um, extremely interested and extremely curious about the entire proceedings. Uh, initially, I would say uh, all of them were very, very skeptical. They they had, uh, they had many, many questions in mind to ask. Uh, they they were they were not convinced at all uh, about the um, the reality of the whole issue. And you could feel their skepticism on day one in terms of the kinds of questions they were asking. But as the week evolved, you could you could feel and see. Uh, not only in their in their uh, their questions, but in their faces. And I spoke with several of the uh, of the uh, the congressmen, uh, the former congressmen, uh, during during break periods. And uh, by the time the week ended, they, to a person, Richard, did a 180 degree turn on on their ideas and their their their, their skepticism behind this whole issue. 
each one of them expressed on, on day five of the very last day of the hearings a complete agreement that something very, very strange was going on and that they um, were indeed, uh, uh, um, you know, g- given the task of, 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 of unfeathering all of this information and coming forward to ask the kinds of questions that prove that we are indeed being engaged. Uh, the bottom line was each and, sing- each and every one of them, Richard, were, co- were singularly convinced that the United States government was hiding information about this and that we are, in fact, being engaged by off-world civilizations. That, and to a person, they became convinced of this. Even the most skeptical person of them, uh, mostly um, Congressman, former Congressman Merrill Cook, who uh, his high degree of skepticism to begin with was completely turned around. Victor Vigiani on the line just returned from Washington, where he sat in on the citizens' hearing on disclosure. Now, let's talk about some of the more compelling testimony. Let's start with uh, our very own... Uh, uh, Honorable Paul Hellyer, who, among other things, uh, testified that, uh, according to, to Hellyer, two living ETs are working with the United States government. Tell me about that particular piece of testimony. Let's actually, we'll do that when we come back. Paul Hellyer says two living ETs are working with the U.S. And, of course, he also said that at least four alien species have been visiting Earth for thousands of years. This is coming from the former Deputy Prime Minister of this country, ladies and gentlemen, testifying in Washington. Back with Victor Vigiani right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Victor Vigiani is with us, just returned from Washington, the citizen, citizen's hearing on a disclosure. Uh, so, Victor, let's get right into it. Uh, the Honorable Paul Hellier, how long did he testify for, and uh, what were some of those the... the uh, the more, um, I don't know, profound things that he had to say. Well, basically, uh, Richard, he testified uh, on the last day, on day five, um, himself and Stephen Bassett and uh, Richard Dolan. Uh, they, they sort of uh, took over the, the last half of the last day. And uh, Paul Hellyer um, spoke about not only his, uh, his previous involvement with the... Um, with the ET issue in terms of what came across his desk uh, back when he was, uh, you know, was, uh, I guess, um, the Minister of Defense here in Canada. Uh, he did not necessarily admit um, while he was uh, uh, Minister of Defense that he had a particular interest in the, the UFO or ET issue. Things did come across his desk at that time, and you've got to remember this was many, many years ago uh, when he was Minister of Defense under, um, under Lester B. Pearson. But at that time, he really didn't take much of the, um, the, the UFO uh, information that came across his desk seriously because he was not, as he was today um, and is today, plugged into this. But uh, as he um, grew in his understanding about this, uh, basically back in 2005 when he came forward at Convocation Hall and uh, had read the book by Phil, uh, Philip Corso uh, the day after Roswell, became virtually convinced after his briefing with a former general in the United States Air Force uh, he, be- he became convinced that uh, there was a UFO presence. And basically, what Paul did say is that he took information from uh, Philip Corso and from others that he's been in contact with, that basically there is a shadow government, there is a ruling elite uh, involving uh, the Rockefellers and the Bush, and there is a cabal of a mili- military-industrial complex, Bilderbergers and other cartels involved, uh, tall whites that are living uh, on the U.S. Air Force base property, either in Area 51 or in other areas, 
and other uh, species from Zeta Reticuli, Pleiadians, and Orions uh, that are in fact engaging with the United States government. And this sounds very provocative uh, and very, um, I, I guess, uh, questionable in a lot of people's eyes. But for this to come forward from a former Minister of National Defense in Canada, uh, it, it impressed uh, each and every one of the, the, the former congressmen that were listening to his, uh, to his testimony. So uh, this individual, in the form of um, Paul Hellyer, was definitely someone who impressed the, the committee with not only his uh, understanding of what the extraterrestrial engagement is, but his commitment and his forcefulness in, um, I guess, uh, <laughs> encouraging this committee to, to make a full statement that they support the idea that we are, in fact, being engaged. And that was one of the very provocative issues that, uh, that I think Paul Hellyer brought forward, is to uh, allow these congressmen to be completely convinced that the United States government is uh, being engaged by off-world civilizations and has, in fact, interacted with them. And that's probably the most important thing, one of the things that he, that he said that impressed me the most. Over the five days, what, looking back, what was the most compelling piece of evidence, whether it was a document, whether it was a photograph or a, a film, that was presented to these congressmen, the most compelling piece of evidence that we are, in fact, being engaged by ETs? Well, I think there's two of them, uh, Richard. Uh, the, the first one was the testimony of, the, uh, of uh, Captain Robert Salas and, uh, and Captain uh, uh, Fenstermacher, uh, of the United States Air Force. Uh, each one of them, both of these uh, former U.S. Uh, Air Force uh, launch, uh, missile launch commanders, were in charge of nuclear weapons um, in, uh, in, uh, in the Med United States, uh, one at Melstrom Mel Air Force Base, another one at Echo Flight. And what they testified basically was that uh, during their tenure uh, as uh, launch commanders, uh, they were in charge of approximately 12 to 15 nuclear missiles in silos at their um, at their bases uh, and uh, basically UFOs would come over the uh, the uh, the security areas and hover uh, the security officers uh, up on top uh, they were 60 feet below uh, would report to them that UFOs were hovering over their their missile installation sites and then once these uh, these uh, UFOs were hovering at some point during this this hovering procedure uh, all 12 to 20 missiles were shut down by the UFOs. And to, to hear these uh, two United States uh, officers testify uh, to the fact that nuclear missiles were compromised um, in their two instances, plus there were five other instances that this uh, occurred in, this was extremely um, important testimony, not just because of the, the nature of the, of the way they described the UFOs, but um, in, in, with respect to the national security implications where craft of unknown origin would hover over nuclear insulation and, and be uh, completely um, uncontrolled. Like the, the United States Air Force had no control over these, uh, over these UFOs. They were, um, uh, they were incursions over Air Force um, uh, security installations, you know, uh, and, and, and they had no control over these things. These things would hover... Uh, and electromagnetically influenced the nuclear missiles to be shut down and to be uh, to be put into a no-go uh, situation where these basically uh, these missiles were useless. And I think that uh, both of the individuals that testified, uh, Fenstermacher and Salas, indicated that the, these um, these UFOs had complete control over whether or not these uh, these missiles would be able to be launched. And for uh, for them to admit, as uh, former launch commanders. 
uh, who controlled uh, missiles uh, that could literally be launched to go to anywhere on the planet and destroy any number of cities or, or, or countries. Uh, this kind of testimony was extremely um, provocative in terms of the way that the, the senator, uh, uh, Senator Gravel, and the other congressmen interpreted it. And there was a, a real eye-opener just to see that the most powerful country on the planet, their, their missiles could be shut down, uh, uh, you know, just uh, virtually automatically by these, uh, by these craft of unknown origin. So that's one of the things that was, uh, in my mind, probably one of the most powerful um, uh, two or three hours of testimony by two of these two men. The uh, a guy that's I know that was a witness and has been on this program many times uh, before and and I think you 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 and I agree he's probably one of the most plugged in individuals uh, in in terms of just the documents that he has and that's uh, Dr. Stephen Greer. Uh, I'm wondering. Uh, I mean, I, I met him in Washington and uh, he he showed me some amazing documents that weren't even declassified. They he just obtained those. They were leaked. Uh, these were documents that were stamped, you know, majestic and, and uh, just some incredible uh, information. What, what sort of documentation uh, did he provide to the, uh, the committee? Can you give us some highlights from Dr. Stephen Greer? Well, basically, <laughs> Stephen, Stephen provided some pretty um, in-depth in um, uh, documentation. W- one of the, the most uh, provocative ones that, that he, he talked about not only were they of, of UFO sightings or interactions with the government, but what, what Stephen provided uh, was uh, a, a very specific documentation that not only um, is the United States government involved in hiding this material, uh, what he provided was um, very specific documentation, Richard, about the amount of money in the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the sequestered uh, special um, access programs that the United States government is, is, is involved in. He, he indicated that there are trillions, literally trillions of dollars that are being set aside by the United States government to, um, to investigate not only the, uh, the presence of, of off-world civilizations, but the amount of money that's actually being sequestered by the government to develop technologies that are, um, are being used uh, and, and perfected by the government these technologies involve uh, scalar weapons. These technologies involve um, uh, uh, anti-gravitic technologies, uh, and in some cases, uh, transformational technologies uh, that involve uh, that teleportation um, and all different types of exotic uh, uh, technologies that are, are, are being um, kept from the United States people and, and from the government. And he was very specific in this, and I, I can tell you that sitting there listening to uh, Stephen Greer's uh, testimony and um, being very close to the to the uh, to the actual witness um, uh, testimony table and watching the faces of the um, of the of the congressman while Stephen Greer and other, of course, other witnesses were testifying. The, the, these people, the the, the the former congressman, were literally sitting there shaking their heads in absolute disbelief because these people had not heard any of this information before they were not briefed beforehand they were not necessarily given any you know prior uh, information about this uh, they were told what other people uh, other witnesses would would share with them uh, in, in sort of a very cursory way but once they heard the depth of of of, of, uh, of, of testimony by people like Greer regarding special access programs and the amount of money that was actually being set aside in a hidden form 
with no oversight by Congress, uh, the congressmen were absolutely, you know, uh, gobsmacked by the fact that their own United States government would would be um, would would be sort of involved in this kind of uh, affair to to keep this from from the from the American people. Victor, we've got about three minutes, and I want a couple. Of, I want to hit on a couple of points here. Number sure, one, you ahead, sent yeah. me an you sent me an email. You were you were down there for maybe a couple of days. You sent me this email just to say hello, and I've arrived, and it's amazing, and and so forth. You hinted that you'd seen some photographs. These were military photographs, reportedly of alien bodies. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, uh, there's the, the the actual testimony by people who had actually seen seen alien bodies. Um, uh, this was testimony given by a, a, a number of, of uh, people. R- Richard Dolan was one of them, stating that uh, people that he had interviewed had actually seen alien bodies. Um, n- not only did um, uh, were, were bodies seen? Uh, they were actually sort of um, uh, the, the, the testimony regarding, um, uh, I guess, the, the analysis of these bodies, the, the autopsy of these bodies. We've we've all seen or heard of the alien autopsy film that was that's been proven uh, by uh, that, that was that was a hoax. However, uh, there was testimony that there was in fact autopsies of actual alien bodies. Uh, done by forensic scientists uh, of the of the alien bodies, and th- this was one of the most disturbing things that I think um, the uh, the congressman found the most difficult to understand. Um, and the, the other thing I, I would like to t- to touch on very briefly with you is the testimony of of um, a former U.S. Uh, uh, Air Force Sergeant Jim Penniston, who actually was engaged in the uh, the Reynoldsham Forest incident, where the U.S. where a UFO was seen. Uh, landing on uh, or near uh, the Bentwaters Air Force Base in the UK back in, 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 the, uh, in the late 80s, where he actually saw this thing land of a craft of about 25 feet in diameter, where he walked up to this craft, and you had to be there, the, the chilling aspect of being there, and listening to Jim Pennison describe as he walked up to the UFO and actually touched this thing and walked around it and examined it, the UFO, looked at the inscriptions on the side of the uh, of the UFO and Jim Penniston's uh, testimony, I think, was probably the most provocative that I, that sent literally chills up my back uh, while I was listening to it. And the silence in the room as he gave his testimony, as he touched this UFO and engaged it, and was uh, actually physically affected by, by the presence of the UFO with radiation and other medical. Uh, implications of, of what he did and what he saw on that day. I, I met Jim in Phoenix a couple of years ago and he, and, and he sat with him face to face and he told me the story. And this guy is totally believable. And for those people that think these guys are out there, you know, promoting this and, and uh, you know, are out to make money, these guys have suffered horribly as a result. It's the last thing that they wanted to happen to them in terms of their career and so forth. But very quickly, we've got about 30 seconds. Just yeah. tell me, the media, I know that, that this actually, thanks to you in large measure, this received some major coverage here in Canada. The Toronto Star featured this on the front page, and you were quoted in that article. Tell me overall, just a, a, in, a, in 30 seconds, the, the way the media is handling this citizen's hearing. Well, very quickly, Richard, um, the, the way the media is handling this is, is very specific. Um, I think that the, the idea of, that the media coverage on this is not finished yet. We have not heard the end of how the media is covering this. I know the Toronto Star article by Mitch by Mitch Potter was very, uh, very well done. It was probably the most, one of the most credible, uh, very well-written pieces on, on the hearings. 
and I'm convinced that, that the, the, the media coverage on this issue is not finished yet. And I think NBC, CBS, and, and ABC have yet to really kind of dig their teeth into the full, um, I guess, determination of what these Congress people are going to be doing with this information. And I think we need to, we need to kind of stand by and listen to what the media will be doing, because the, the, the media coverage on this was extremely specific. And I know the front page news that, uh, that we got here at Zealand Communications about the, uh, the, the hearings was, as far as I'm concerned, a groundbreaker. And one of the goals that I've already had in, in my life is to become part of a front page news story that involves UFOs, and I'm very proud of that. And you should be, Victor. Great work. Thanks for joining us. We'll, uh, we'll see you here in the studio in the not-too-distant future. Thanks for this. We'll talk to you soon. Bye for now. Victor Vigiani. Thanks for Tim's, uh, Tim Despreen for production. Uh, back next week. Hope, you, hope you'll be aboard for that. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.